It's good to see everyone here this evening. It's always an honor and a privilege to be here and worship God with you. Thankful for the song service. Thankful for the day. Very thankful for the words that Callan had this morning. It's been tearing me up all day. I appreciate you doing that before I speak. I just, it's got my heart. And uh, I guess the older we get, the more we self-examine ourselves, the harder it gets to realize where we're at in life. I've been tasked with Acts chapter 7, and I look forward to sharing some things with you out of that. If you take out a book and turn there, uh, and I say taxed because there's lots and lots of information, 60 verses, hundreds of years, and Paul's little mind, that, that blows me all over the place. I mean, there's just so much there. Um, we're going to try to do the 30,000 feet observation of this chapter. We're going to attempt to do that. Sometimes I feel like a weed eater when I'm trying to do that. I get in the weeds, and I apologize but I think we've got some things to consider here. Uh, certainly if, uh, if I don't do it justice and there's things that I don't touch on that you feel are very important, uh, I agree with you. There's, there's any number of ways you can go with this chapter and all I know to do is just jump in with both feet and we'll, we'll see where we end up and hopefully there'll be some things that you can take with you. I want to start out by asking you a question, and it's one that every elder and every deacon has asked themselves in the last year. I have no doubt, and I hadn't talked to them. They've not expressed that to me, but it's something that has weighed on my mind a lot. We're sitting here in an assembly, we're worshiping God, we're looking at His Word, we're wanting to do the right thing. It's our turn to sit at the back of the church and watch the doors and an intruder comes through the door because we forgot to lock the door. And they're heading our way. We have choices to make and we have that long to make them. Now I wanted to give a disclaimer. We don't carry firearms in here. But for the sake of the example, what if I did? And what if I did go after that person? Because I know they're coming to do you harm. And they're coming to do me harm. And my wife harm. And here they come. Full throttle. And here I go, right at him. As Thomas said, he'd carry two Bibles in front of his chest and hope for the best. You know, we all got to come up with some idea what we're going to do, right? Okay, so let's say I get to the guy. He fatally wounds me. And I kill him and I die on top of him. What would my legacy be? What would you as an individual of this congregation think about me? I know it's a, crazy, it's a crazy scenario that none of us ever thought we would have to consider. But I consider, what would you think of me? Would you think I was a hero? That I did a great thing for the body of Christ? Would you think I should have kicked him in the knee? I should have slid under, knocked his feet out from under him, throwed a book at him. Would you have other answers and say, well, you know, Paul wouldn't have died if he wouldn't have, maybe he should have entreated him instead of, what would you do? And how would you think about me? Isn't that crazy that we would ask that? And yet here we are today in the time that we live in watching those kinds of things happen on TV and hearing that the Supreme Court just ruled in Nevada that churches couldn't meet with more than, I don't know, a handful of people. But you could go to the casino 
and it would be just fine. And the Supreme Court ruled against the churches. Happened Friday. You ever thought that would happen? Casino, yes. Church, no. Get sick at church, happy at the casino. The whole world turned upside down, didn't it? But I could get in the weeds, so let's go back to my example. Okay, so what would you think of me? Would you think I took one for the team? Because that's where we're going to start. And I'm going to tell you, Stephen took one for God's team. He stood up and he hit them with both barrels. And he did it with the history of God's people. He did it with the Holy Spirit. And he came straight at them. And he didn't blink an eye. And he showed them God's plan. He showed them the divine intervention. And then he showed them what their great-grandpa did wrong, what granddad did wrong, what dad did wrong, and what you did wrong. Who's not coming after somebody that does that? You're going to talk about my grandpa, my great-grandpa, my dad, and me not be upset? Remember, we talked about pride. Boy, that swells up, don't it? You start talking about my ancestors, and we get really tore up. We get upset. You know, back when I was in school, you, called, you said something about somebody's mama. You don't talk about my mama, boy. We, you bow up, and your old chest stuck out, and you might look like a couple of banty roosters, you know, doing that. People get upset. Well, here we have Stephen. Now, I want to start in Acts 6, and I want to tell Randall I apologize for treading on his uh, lesson. I didn't hear it, so I hope that maybe the things I say won't interfere with what he had to say for you. But I do want to go back in 6, verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In verse 5, and say, this saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. So here we see this man was recognized as a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost. He'd been around a while. He'd been, he'd been serving God. He was not somebody new that these people didn't know. Now who was he going to be talking to? Well, let's look in verse 9. Or excuse me, uh, Let's look in verse 8 first. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So not only was he a faithful man, now we see that he's even done miracles among them. He's got proof that God is with him. He has shown it to the people and he's done it in the right way. He has followed what the Holy Spirit has moved him to do. Now let's see who he is going to encounter in verse 9 of chapter 6. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, if you're looking at the King James, it says Libertines, Cyrenians, Alexandrians. In the New King James, it says the synagogue of the freedmen, and then it has these names in parentheses. thought that was interesting. So what are we supposed to do and things we're supposed to... How does this apply to us? I'm going to apply this in this way. When you look at that verse, what other synagogue was labeled with a name that wasn't by locality? Have you thought about that? When you look in Scripture, most of them will say, 
the synagogue here, or the synagogue there, or it'll give you a geographic location, not this one. It was known as the synagogue of the freedmen, or you can take all of these names and what they were as freed slaves from all over this area. And as I, I just read a little bit of history, I didn't try to track all that down. Supposedly, even in Pompeii, they found one of these synagogues of the freedmen. So all the way back there, we see all these churches with all these different names and everybody trying to uh, identify themselves differently, segregate themselves from the others, show that they have a personal identity. They had that at a synagogue. And it was known by what type of people used that synagogue. And so when they came from this different area, these different areas, that's where they went. Now that's what I understand. I had not thought about that before. I had not seen that before. But I found it very interesting because it applied to even today about how man has this desire to separate themselves from others with some identifying factor. Whether it's a name, whether it's a club, whether it's an organization, a co-op, a Fortune 500 company, or a farm. We like that, don't we? Okay, so now we have these freed slaves from this synagogue are going to go task head-to-head with Stephen. Okay, so I hope that isn't too muddy. Um, let's see here. Sorry. Okay, now in verse 15 of 6, he says, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now here he is, he's in front of the council with the high priest, and they say they looked at his face and it was like an angel. Now he's done miracles, he's been faithful, he's proven himself to be of God, both supernaturally and through the things that he talked about. And now he's before the council, and they said his face looked like an angel. And what do we do in chapter 7, verse 1? The high priest says, all these things you've been accused of, is that so? Stephen, is that so? You ever been insulted? You think that might have been an insult to Stephen? You reckon? I had a guy on a job accuse me one time of stealing two hours of time. And I'm going to tell you what, I was mad as I've ever been in my entire life. Probably shouldn't have been, but I was 20 years old and it just flew all over me. Not to mention I knew it was false. I had three bosses at that time, him and two others, and they were all tracking time. Well... He, he thought he had everybody's time down, and somewhere in the middle, I had billed two extra hours of time. Tore me up. Now, Stephen has just been accused of all these things that they've said about him in chapter 6. And he don't even blink an eye. He don't act offended. He starts down a long history lesson.
And so in chapter, in chapter 7 and verse 2, he says, Men and brethren, fathers, hark, hearken, or listen. The God of glory appeared unto the father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charan. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come unto the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as is set his foot on, as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise that his seed should sojourn in a strange land and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. Stephen begins this history lesson and he couples it with prophecy and God's plan for his people. And he begins covering hundreds of years of time and laying out God's hand in it. In verse 6 he says, 400 years of enslavement by an evil regime. Can you imagine? Would you want to know if we were fixing to get beat by China and we was going to have to be slaves for 400 years? Would you rather be surprised or would you not want to know? That's a scary thing, isn't it? 400 years that you would be enslaved, be in bondage, couldn't escape, couldn't go where you wanted to go, couldn't do what you wanted to do. That's some serious, serious situation, isn't it? Life-altering, not only for you, but for your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. That's what he was talking about. Let's look at Isaiah 55 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, God said, I don't do it your way. He tells me, he says, Paul, I don't do it your way. I do it my way. And my way's way above your way. And my thoughts are not even close to your thoughts. That's what he tells us. That as hard as we try to grasp the mind of God, we can't come close. We can't have the thoughts and we can't put things together the way he did and does. You know, we don't have the ability to plan out several hundred years. Have you ever thought about that? Planning out several hundred years? We talk about kids, about setting goals, and then we get in college and we show them how. And then we go to classes on how to strategic plan. And we look at all kinds of different things man has come up with to devise a plan to the best of our ability. And you know what? When we look out 25 years, we're blurry, we're fuzzy. It's a tough sell to get somebody to look 25 years into the future. They don't want to do it. 
You know, in my job, I run into people all the time, and we talk about 25 years, and they say, Paul, man, I ain't even going to be alive then. What are we talking about 25 years? I hate that. It's too long. And they kick the dirt, and they don't like it. And they say, you know, I got a kid might not even be alive by then. And they're just thinking about age. They're not thinking about accidents or anything else. That's a long time. You know, when we start thinking about going that long, it's all out of focus. That's a very long time frame. I'll give you an example. When I was 16, I decided that I was going to get married when I was 21. And I was going to have a... Well, actually, I was going to get married when I was 20. I was going to have a baby when I was 21. And by the time I was 25, I was going to be through having kids, and we were on it. We were going to farm 1,000, 1,500 acres. We were going to live on the farm in the middle of nowhere, and if I had five sections around me and no people, I was happy. That was going to be good. You know what was wrong with that? Is one day I woke up and I was 23 and I didn't have a wife. Kind of missed that, didn't I? And so 24, no wife. 25, no wife. And no kids. Just clarify that. No kids. And at 26, I got a wife. And you know what? Wasn't long till I had a kid. You know what I didn't have? I didn't have five sections around me. I wasn't out in the middle of nowhere by myself. And you know what? I wouldn't even want that today. Now, I guess it's been a little over 25 years since I had those ideas, but I'm 50. You know, with the exception of wanting to have a wife and wanting to have kids and being very thankful for what I have, everything changed. You see, we were, we're terrible at looking that far out and really sticking to a plan and making it work for our entire life. I knew a guy one time that he borrowed money just as quick as he could and he bought land. He borrowed money and he bought land. He put together a great amount of land. And he was so excited he bought half of this ranch that he wanted. And another guy bought the other half. Well, the other guy was behind him on growing, but he had paid as he went, slow and sure. And he had just ran way ahead of him, borrowing money. And then one day it came up, he had a bad crop and he couldn't make his payments. And he had to sell his favorite ranch. He'd worked for years to get that piece of dirt. But it was the one piece that if he sold it, it could help him keep everything else. And he had to do that. See, we're terrible planners. This guy was a great businessman, it still is. He's done a lot of things in his life. But he lost that one piece of dirt that he had really wanted. That wasn't in his plan. So how does this apply to us? We don't usually see plans of this magnitude. We're talking about a lot of years here that Stephen's laying out for them. And it's a very precise plan by God. It was prophesied about. It was delivered. And here Stephen is giving it to these people. But you know, we live in a time when we want answers now, don't we? We want our answers right now. We don't have the patience that we should have. You know, when someone passes away, the family, all around, why them? They were such a good person, why? And a lot of times we ask those questions, don't we? Or something else may happen. And we go, why did that happen? 
Why did so-and-so get cancer? They're such a good person. They're a great Christian. They've got things to do for the Lord. And we're sincere in those questions, and we long for those answers. We lack patience to wait on the Lord for a long period of time. For God, it is only as a matter of seconds, as He watches mankind dwell upon this earth. In 2 Peter, the third chapter, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, the Lord don't look at time the way we do. He can see ahead of time. He can see behind time. He can see all the way around time. He can stop time. God can do whatever He wants. He lives outside of the parameters that you and I live in. And sometimes we get impatient with His plan. But you know, God is very optimistic with mankind. We see in verse 9 that He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants to be long-suffering toward us as He looks for us to repent. Just as He did in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was teaching these people, the purpose of that teaching was repentance. Accept the new way. They talked about the old customs. And they said, He's changing the customs that Moses gave us. I thought it was interesting they didn't call them ordinances or laws. Called them customs when they told the high priest and the council about it. But they didn't like that. They didn't want to hear the change, even though they knew the prophecies. Now let's go back to chapter 7 and start in verse 8. He says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and he delivered him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So we see that Joseph went down to Egypt by himself, and we know he was sold into bondage. Can you imagine being sold out by your own family? It happens. There's people in the world you can run in today that have had that happen to them. That's what happened. And then there was all these terrible things that were happening around Joseph, but God was with him, and he delivered him. And as they went down and his family came into Egypt, they were a tribe of 75 people. 75. And these are the people that God promised he would make a great nation. When they came out of Egypt, there were several million 
But that was after 400 years of bondage. You think we have the focus to really comprehend even 400 years, much less the whole story that's been given here? 400 years of bondage. And then they came out several million. And then the way we read the Bible sometimes, we don't realize there's stops in there where great periods of time pass. And this is one of those times where there was a lot of time here when they went down as 75 souls and then they came out. And I want to notice that when they came out, let's look back in verse 7. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. So he makes reference to this 400 years was preparing them to come back and serve God and do the right thing. Is that what happened? Is that what they did? Actually, they made idols. They worried about Moses. He went up on the mountain and, and uh, it didn't work out, did it? They didn't serve Him after they left Egypt. They got scared. They decided to go back to what they had learned in Egypt, to man's teachings and man's ways. And it was a, it was a difficult time. But God persevered, and God continued to put the truth in front of them. And many of them did turn from their wicked ways and follow Him. Now let's look at uh, verse 18. He says, Till another king arose, which knew not Joseph, the same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up, and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. I want to notice, Moses was brought up as an Egyptian, wasn't he? It says he was mighty in words and deeds. He was out doing great things for the royal family. He was well learned and educated in their, in their teachings. And you know, that was a big deal for him. And he was living it up. You know, he was 40 years old when he decided to go see God's people. That means he was on the earth 40 years before that crossed his mind and was placed in his heart. That first 40 years, he was living the good life. Riches, education, power, family support, good job, doing great, keep it up. Forty years. You know, sometimes in our own life, how does that apply to us? I would say we see people all the time and we get disappointed in them when they mess up and they don't do what our expectations are. You know, it only took Moses 40 years to figure out he needed to go do some things for God. He's 40 years old. As we'll see in a minute, he was 80 when he actually went back to Egypt to help God's people. But you know, he was mighty indeed right here and works. And, and he, he was a great, great guy. He was everybody's guy. He was the leader. 
What was he when he was down in Midian? I'm going to tell you, he went from being at the front of the group, leading, doing the things that he needed to do. When he was down in Midian, he was out in the middle of nowhere by himself, tending sheep. You think he'd been beat up a little bit with the decision that he made to kill the Egyptian over there? He knew God had a plan for him. We read about that. He knew it. And he went to Midian and he stayed out there by himself and he pondered on life. And we know that when he was going to be sent back, he said, I'm not a man of words. I'm slow of speech. I'm, you know, he makes, he makes it out like he's shy or whatever. And, and then God sends Aaron with him to help him. You think his life had changed a little bit? You think the pride that he had at 40 was the same at 80? I would submit to you that life had taken a lot of that out of him. And he had pondered on what he needed to be and what he needed to do. And now he was being tasked. He was ready for the task that God had asked him to do. And that was to go back and lead his people out of bondage. So let's read 23 to 29. And when he was full of 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would, would deliver them. But they understood not. Now I want to stop right there. How do we apply that to us? He thought that the brethren would understand that God's hand was in it and he was supposed to do these things. It says, but they understood not. I would submit to you that many times when the elders or someone in the church that's trying to help people, maybe they come for counseling, maybe they, the elders go to them because they're worried about their soul, and they talk to them about things that are hard in their life, things they're struggling with, and they say, that's just who I am. That's too bad. I can't do that. I can't change. I cannot. What they're really saying is, I will not. I will not change. All the while, the people that are trying to help love that person. They care for those souls. They want you to be successful in life. They want me to be successful in life. But correction's difficult, isn't it? If we're having to be corrected. Or if we're asking for someone to show us the corrections that we need to make and then denying that those are the things that need to happen. You ever been there? You ever been in those shoes? I can't say I've done everything right. I can certainly say I've been corrected before on something or this or that or many things. So the question is, how do we accept that? Do we suppose that they're against us or do we give them credit for being for us? I would submit to you that we're here for one another. We love one another. We care for one another and God has tasked certain people in His congregation with watching over you, watching out for your good, caring for the souls of you and yours, and trying to help you get back on track when you fall off. We need to remember these things because the Bible teaches over and over that man rejects those things. Man's nature is to say, no, I'm not going to. I can't. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, we think about uh, 
Moses in that, that next 40 years. He, he's out there with those sheep. And then he knows God has the plan for him at 80. And he still trembles at the voice of God when it speaks to him from the bush. He knew in his heart. He already knew that God was going to come back to him and have something for him to do. And he wouldn't even look at the bush. It scared him to death. I want to ask you, on Judgment Day, are you and I going to say, Lord, I can't and I won't. And I'm not going to. Or are we going to submit and bow down and worship our Creator? I would submit to you we will do that whether we want to or not. While it is our choice to reject good counsel today, it will not be our choice on that day. You know, some of the things that were, would have been hard for Moses to do what God asked him to do at 40, sometimes that's the same for us today. You know, the danger of pride and being puffed up is very tempting when we're young. And I'm not saying 40 is young or old. Let's say 20, 30, whatever, whatever number you want to put in there. Moses was 40, but he lived to be 120. So his 40 was a little younger than ours. But you know, we, we worry about younger people being puffed up with pride when they're trying to help with church work. But you know, after we're scarred up from life's happenings, we begin to leave pride and we begin to embrace God and His helping hand in our life. We depend on Him more and more and less on ourselves. We cling to Him. We thrive on His Word. We pray and we ask for guidance. And we pray for those that we would have never thought about praying for when we're younger. Our circle of prayer gets larger and larger as we care deeper and deeper for the kingdom of God. You know, Moses was 120 years old when his work was finished for the Lord, when he was about to pass. And I think it grieved him that he'd made the mistakes that he made, just like it grieves us. So, what about us today? What about you and I? Do we feel like we're old enough that we're finished working for the Lord? Do we feel like we've done enough while we were young? Or we're going to wait till we're old? Or do we still have work to do? Do we resist? Or do we embrace God's work that He has given for you and I to do? We all have different tasks that God wants from us. We all have different parts that we play in His kingdom. But you know, He takes off down in verse 30. And I'm jumping through the story of Moses there. We all, we all should be fairly familiar with that. And down in verse 40, I'm sorry, in verse 39... He says, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them. So once again, he brings up this point. Your ancestors, my ancestors, refused to do the right thing. He points that out to them again. 
And then he goes through how they went to the back to the idols. In verse 40, he says, Saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered sacrifice unto the idol, and they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heavens. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have you offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." Not a very pretty picture, is it, that he's painting for these folks. He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. And as he appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought with him, brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temple made, temples made with hands, as he saith to the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? And then we get down to the clincher. You know, a lot of times when we do a lesson, we have a clincher, don't we? Stephen had one. He's already tuned them up pretty good. He's reminded them about their ancestors. And now he's just going to come straight down Front Street. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. So now he had not, he's already slapped great-grandpa, grandpa, you, and now he's saying you're a murderer. That's the message. You guys are murderers. We're murderers. That's what he said. They didn't like that very good, did they? We, we don't like that, do we? When somebody calls us something, even if they're right, we don't like it. In ball games and stuff, we have to have rules that says you can't do that so people don't end up beating up each other up in the middle of the court. You've got to tame your tongue. Stephen gave it to them both barrels. And he, was, he had the Holy Spirit with him. And there wasn't anything wrong in what he said. But it was very straightforward. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He said, you've been given the law, but you ain't kept it. You hadn't done it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, he's already hammered them. They're already so upset. They're on top of him. And he says, 
I see the Son of God on the right hand. Of, I mean, the Son of... I'll get it here in a minute. The Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, and they just couldn't take it anymore. They just came unwound. Like these crazy people we see on TV burning stuff to the ground. They just ran on him and gnashing on him. And he cried out with a loud voice. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So as we get down to the end here, we see that it was an ugly picture. He had given them the truth. They didn't want to hear it. They were upset about it. And then when he said that he saw the Son of Man, they just, they just lost it. And they descended upon him like a bunch of locusts. They cast him out of the city. And they killed him. Now how does that apply to us today? Are we worried about someone being upset because we're a little too good? That we don't participate in dirty jokes or we don't say cuss words or we don't drink because everybody else there at the place we're at drinks? Does that bother us? Do we worry about what other people think or what they might say or that they might cast us out of a group? You know, it didn't bother Stephen to the point that when they were ready to gnash on him with their teeth and kill him with rocks, he was all about doing what God wanted him to do. And I'm going to tell you, when he saw danger coming at his brethren, he stood in the, in the gap and he took one for God's team. That guy was coming. To, those people were coming to do harm to God's kingdom. And he let them have it. And he did what he could do to resist the evil that they were bringing with them. And he lost his life over it. So I ask you today, if you had lived in Stephen's time and you had seen all of this crazy happen, you didn't have a TV, you were an eyewitness. You were on the street and you saw it. And you saw this guy over here named Saul. And he's just sitting there going, yeah, this is a good deal. Let's get her done. And a little bit later, you're going to see him flipping all the way around. And now he's talking about the things that Stephen was talking about. You think you might have thought the whole world was upside down? Think you might be upset? How would you feel towards Saul when he first came into the congregation for the first time? And you saw him smiling while Stephen was killed. Boy, that'd be something, wouldn't it? It'd be crazy. We'd wonder, how in the world do we deal with that? How do we get people in the church to trust him? How do we, would you like to be an elder in that deal? Get to try to figure all that out and make everybody jail? You know, there were people that had to do that when all that was going on. They had to make sense of it themselves. And then they had to make sense of it for their church. And then they had to pray to God that they, the things they were doing were right. And if I could tell you anything today, examine yourself. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Never be afraid to change when the change is for the better. Because that's what Christianity is all about. And if we can't do that because it hurts too bad, or we can't do that because we don't believe we need to, we need the help of our brethren. The church is here to pray with you and for you if you have a need in your life. If there's change that needs to take place, if you can put your shoes or yourself in the shoes of Saul and know that you've stood there and watched ridicule of the church or Christ or your own life denying Christ, make those changes today. Get yourself right with God and let the people in this building help you and love you and cherish the good decisions that you're about to make. We ask one if you have a need to come as we stand and sing.